Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, can I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 13? It's page uh, 978, 979 in the Pew Bibles. It's been a great service. Uh, there's certainly been a tinge of sadness about it, but it's been a, a really great service. And I could have listened to Johnny for much longer, and I actually sense lots of you could have. And probably some of you are thinking, would there have been any chance I might have shut up and you just let Johnny go with it? Because to be honest, lots of what Johnny's already shared in reporting back has, like, I think, spoken to lots of people's lives. So uh, please take away what Johnny shared if you hear nothing of what I say. Last Sunday night, as part of our Essential Word series, our journey right through the, the Bible in a year, we started reflecting on the teaching of Jesus. And we specifically looked at the Beatitudes, those eight statements at the beginning of Matthew 5, at the beginning of his so-called Sermon on the Mount, that provide a vision that actually grounds the way we're meant to live our lives. Eight statements that teach us how to enter and enlarge and enjoy the kingdom of God. Now here's a little question for you. If you are a Christian here this morning, can you identify the eight Beatitudes that provide a blueprint for authentic Christian living. Okay? Without looking at your Bibles. So can I encourage you to do that? Like just as I speak, if you get a bit distracted, try to jot down the eight statements that Jesus said, here's a blueprint for authentic Christianity. This morning we're going to listen to more of of Jesus' teaching regarding the kingdom of heaven. And on many occasions, whenever Jesus spoke about it, He used a particular teaching style. He spoke in parables to say what he wanted to say. Now, there has been and there continues to be a certain amount of debate regarding parables. And one of the key areas for discussion relates to the amount of information you can take from them. So, for example, some people think parables make one point. Others reckon they make one main point Per main character. Others don't want to put a restriction on the number of points. But you know, some however many points they make, or lessons we can take from them, Jesus used them to amazing effect. And he loved using them. There are something like 40 parables of Jesus found in the Gospels. And at the end of the day, they're stories. Seemingly simple, relevant, short stories that help communicate important information and truth. But stories that tend to pack a powerful punch, or two, or three. There's very often a sting in the tail, an unexpected twist at the end. And picking up on this, David Buttrick writes this helpful comment, Parables usually begin rather tritely depicting our everyday world in an everyday way, but then in most cases there is something surreal that disrupts our world uh, in a way, and, sorry, disrupts our world and hints at a wider, more mysterious world as well as a more astonishing God. And I find that brilliant because if you can approach the parables, this unique teaching method of Jesus, in the hope of discovering a wider, more mysterious world as well as a more astonishing God, then the potential for renewed thinking and transformation is incredibly exciting. So what I want us to do this morning is listen and engage along with a crowd as Jesus tells a dramatic story. 
Matthew 13, 24. The kingdom of heaven, says Jesus, is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And so Jesus sets the scene. It's an everyday, rural, recognizable scene. Everyone listening to Jesus in that original context would have immediately identified with what's going on. But as he sets the scene, Jesus also confirms the point. The point of this story. It's to explain and provide further insight into this kingdom. This alternative kingdom that he's come to bring and that he wants to see grow in and through the lives of his followers. The story continues. Jesus introduces a villain. Every good story has one. An enemy lurking in the shadows of night who has come to carry out his premeditated crime. Crowd are drawn in. They're now hanging on every word in the story. The bad guy enters the field as everyone sleeps and he sows weeds amongst the wheat, amongst the good seeds. And then he steals away under the cover of darkness. Now before we go on, we kind of need to pause for a bit of a footnote. The Greek word here for weeds is this. not exactly sure how you pronounce it. Refers to a particular type of weed. Here's the interesting bit. It looks just like wheat as it's growing up. Apparently you can hardly tell the difference. Today it's known as darnel or false wheat. The Jews have another name for it, but I'm not going to refer to that for fear of offending someone. And although it initially looks like wheat, especially in the early days when only the stems and leaves have sprouted, it's not wheat. And eventually, reality dawns. Back to the story. Because as the wheat forms ears, in other words, displays its distinctive features, the weeds are exposed. And it's the farmer's servants who make this shocking discovery. And so they go to their boss and they ask, where did the weeds come from? You sowed good seeds and yet your field is riddled with darnel. The farmer knows exactly what has happened. An enemy did this. So where does the story go from here, the crowd are thinking? Well, according to Jesus, the master storyteller, the servants, the farmhands, then ask another question. Boss, do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? Seems logical, makes sense, sounds like the right thing to do, and then comes the sting in the tail. Then comes the unexpected twist as the farmer says, no. Let the weeds and wheat grow together. If you pull up the weeds, you'll only end up uprooting the wheat as well. So let them coexist. But when the harvest time comes, I'll sort it out. I'll get the harvesters to first of all collect the weeds, bind them into bundles and torch them. And then they'll gather the wheat and bring it into my storeroom. Narrative ends, parable over, story finished, crowd 
intrigued. Heads spinning. But before anyone can begin to process what they've just heard, Jesus tells two more stories. Two more short parables. Further one from the world of farming and agricultural and then one about baking. Again, both told to describe the kingdom of heaven. Plot lines might change. Characters are different. But the reason for telling the stories doesn't alter. The kingdom of heaven is like... Now, I'm not going to deal with either of these in any great detail, except to say that when you take the next two together, they reveal a vitally important reality about the kingdom of heaven. In that, they illustrate, please hear this, they illustrate the potential of enormous growth resulting from tiny, unpromising beginnings. A mustard seed is minuscule, but it becomes a tree that birds can land on and perch in. A small amount of yeast mixed in onto a large batch of flour, and the quantity of bread it produces is significant in comparison. Here's a point. Not saying it's the only point, but it's definitely a point. The kingdom of heaven is exactly like this. Don't underestimate it. Might seem small, even fragile at times, but its growth and its impact will be truly remarkable. And everyone listening to Jesus would have been fascinated by this suggestion. Especially to the disciples, maybe even more so the disciples, because you see, as they looked around them, not a lot has changed to date. This Jesus movement. And his kingdom hasn't exactly taken over the world. Lots of people, yes, they've expressed an interest, but if anything, suspicion and opposition is now growing towards Jesus. Yet, via these simple stories, Jesus is saying, listen, appearances can be so deceiving. There is an exciting future ahead. Explosive growth is not a pipe dream. Don't minimize this. Don't misjudge this. Don't misread this. Don't play down the potential. And again, heads in a sense would have been spinning, but it's worth making the point, you know, as we sit here 2,000 plus years later, after all this initial kingdom of heaven talk and teaching, it seems that Jesus was right. It really does seem that Jesus was right. Tiny beginnings. But it's still growing. It's still transforming. It's still changing lives. It's still changing situations. It's still changing communities. It's still changing our world. Even though, as Roy said at the start of the service, at times when we look around us, it's a mess. We thank God We pray for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And it just doesn't seem to be. Remember the mustard seed. Remember the yeast. Back to Matthew 13. Because in verse 36 we read that the crowd disperses and Jesus and his disciples retreat indoors. And in the safety of that place, the disciples ask for an explanation. But not of the mustard seed. Not of the yeast. Maybe they got those. I don't know. It's the earlier one they're puzzled about, they're intrigued by. Jesus, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Now, whenever you read the Gospels, you don't find many explicit explanations of parables offered by Jesus. There is a reference to him doing it in Mark 4. But we don't get to hear them 
just says whenever he was with his disciples, he explained them. We don't get to hear them. We don't get to read the explanations, apart from maybe one other occasion. For us, along with the general crowds, parables are left bouncing around your head. As I know the first one maybe was for some of you. What, did that, what was that about? It's almost like a riddle. But not this one, because from the comfort of that home, Jesus sheds light on it for everyone. As he identifies the farmer, the field, the good seed, the weeds, the enemy, the harvest, and the harvesters, turns out the farmer is the son of man, i.e. Jesus himself. The field is the world, as in the earth, the whole earth, the cosmos. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. The enemy is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. That is the end of this present age. And the harvesters, or the reapers, depending on your translation, are angels. Jesus says it all, explains it all. Now before we we continue with Jesus' explanation and we revisit some familiar, although deeply sobering material, we need to, in light of what we now know, go back and reflect a bit further on what some see as the key comment, the key verse, the key discovery in this parable. You may, want, you may want to challenge me afterwards in this, and that's absolutely fair. Let, here's one of the mysteries of the kingdom, so to speak. Let the wheat and the weeds grow together until harvest. Weeds and wheat growing side by side. Light and darkness, righteous and unrighteous. Should we not pull them up to echo the servant's proposal? Deal with them decisively. Get rid of them. Purge the field in our world. Jesus says, no. Let both grow together. And sadly, down through the years, some Christians, or you could say those claiming to be, haven't always got this. In fact, I've totally missed it. There have been times, for example, whenever Christians have sought to pull the weeds, rip them out of their roots, stuck on their rubber gloves and headed out armed with bottles of Roundup, often with the intention of either imposing Christianity, forcing it, or deciding we'll do the separating here. We'll do the judging. And there were even times when people have took phrases from Scripture and twisted them to justify their behavior. So Luke 14.23 says, Compel them to come in. It's a phrase found in another parable. Some people have taken that idea and that comment to mean that they can adopt a heavy-handed, aggressive approach to weeds. Let them grow, says Jesus, together. You see, Jesus wants his followers to live in the world side by side with non-Christians. Not passively, of course, but in a way that influences them for good and for God. Back to the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. The key aspect of that teaching includes the reference and the challenge to be salt and light. 
light shining as with just sun. Let your light shine before others. So that what? They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, light and good deeds are positive qualities and they are expressions that will influence people in the right direction rather than alienate them. Rather than create distance. Jesus wants his followers to live alongside others in a way that offers an alternative lifestyle. To reach out in love. Even to those who mistreat you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's how we're to live with, not against others. It's how Jesus lived. He could have used his power to dominate, but instead he comes to serve and to lay down his life. Wheat And weeds should be left to grow together. And who knows what might happen before the final harvest. And I know some people say, but hang on a minute, weeds don't naturally become wheat. But then again, sinful human beings don't naturally become friends of God. Something supernatural has got to happen. And Johnny touched on this. It's the realm of God's activity. God rescues. God saves. God reconciles. God redeems. Our task is to live with in a way that points others in his direction. It's not our job to coerce, to judge, to dominate, to force, to separate. It's our calling to live with in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting way. But there's another lesson to learn or danger to avoid. I'm nearly done. Although Jesus has said, let them grow together, there is a certain mindset that opts for isolation as opposed to domination, that tries to live apart from or away from the weeds, retreats into some kind of Christian ghetto or holy huddle, a purely Christian wheat-only world, ditching any real genuine redemptive concern for fellow human beings. And I know I might be skating on very thin ice here, Uh, But creating Christian-only anythings, and I'm not going to offer any examples for fear of dropping myself in at big time, I'm just not sure of the point. I understand the reasoning, but I just don't think we have a biblical mandate to constantly get away from and isolate ourselves from the weeds. That, of course, as I've said, doesn't mean you blend in, you compromise, you buy into certain values, or you live carelessly, but it does mean that you exist close enough to bring flavor as salt and to shine bright as light. To model the example of Jesus who left a weed-free, comfortable environment and became the friend of sinners. In order to bring hope and new life and transformation, Jesus says, let them grow together. But he doesn't stop there, I know that. And and this is the difficult bit. This is the kind of sobering bit. Because Jesus says this arrangement won't go on forever. It's until the harvest, which, as Jesus has explained, means the end of the age. And at that point, and at that moment in time, which is God's time, Kairos time, he'll send his angels to do the necessary weeding. 
And any separating will be done at that point, not before, and by them. And Judgment Day is an explicit, expectant reality in Scripture. There is a final judgment awaiting all humanity. Each person is destined to die, and after that to face judgment. And God will judge, and he will do right, and he will determine weeds from wheat, and he will separate, and justice will be served, and nobody will get away with anything. And for those, and as I say, this is a tough bit for me, for those who are weeds, the future is bleak. And the language is disturbing. And I take no pleasure in it. Because it says they end up being burned in a blazing furnace where there will be, to use a phrase that Matthew uses six times and only appears once elsewhere in the New Testament, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the contrast between their fate and that of the righteous, the weak, the people of the kingdom couldn't be more different. According to Jesus, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. What an incredible prospect awaits us. But what a stark contrast. And as I close, I just want to say something to those who are people of the kingdom. To the weak. We don't live in a spiritually sanitized clinical environment. We share this field. We share this world with others, with those who are not yet Christians, those who don't follow Jesus. And their reaction to us and to our faith is mixed. Some are aggressively against Christianity. And they make our lives difficult. Some accept it, some respect it, some just let us get on with it. There are others who are intrigued by it and are searching for answers and there's every other reaction and response in between. For now, Jesus says, just let the wheat and the weeds grow together. Take heart, but wheat still grows in the presence of weeds. In fact, it can thrive. And the kingdom will expand as the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast remind us. We won't be choked up. We won't be overrun. We won't be wiped out. For now we shine like stars. We act as salt and light. We produce fruit, our distinctive feature. We live as kingdom dwellers. We embrace and express kingdom values. Those eight, for example, I referred to at the start. We live in this world together with others. And it might feel at times like we're sheep among wolves, but that's to be expected apparently. And as we exist and we grow, we can trust God to work it all out in the end, in his time. In his not up to us. And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as wheat or as a child of God, a Christian, then I hope and pray you'll never feel judged by us. And that you will enjoy living with the presence of Christians in and around your life. But I urge you to take seriously the reality of final judgment and separation whenever the difference in eternal destiny of wheat and weeds is phenomenal. And we long for you to choose the opportunity to shine like the sun. And to echo Jesus' closing line, 
whoever has ears, let them hear. In other words, please pay attention to this. Don't miss it.